don't freak out. It's, it's very detailed. I tried to make it so where you could go back and look at this and actually know um, what we were talking about, kind of remember all the things. And if you're close enough to the screen to see it, I would actually pull up the handout on like half the screen and then maybe like my face or like the handout on the whole screen with a tiny little picture of my face because it'll be a lot easier to follow uh, as if you keep track with that. So the title of this workshop is Theology 101, Build Your Faith on Purpose. And I'm really glad <laughs> that all of you guys are here. It's awesome. But uh, I want to answer, firstly, that question that we talked about. What does it take to build? So the first thing that I thought of was a material, you know, it takes stuff to build the house. And when you're building your faith, specifically, um, that stuff that makes up a, an actual, like, complete, structurally sound faith is perspectives, values, and beliefs. So you, get, you need the stuff. Um, the blueprints, you know, Connor mentioned a plan. It's a, a plan for how, where things go and how they relate. So it's how your perspectives, values, and beliefs work together. Um, or if they do very well, you know, if they work together well, that's great. But sometimes people don't really have a clear idea of what they believe or how it works. And they need a builder. You know, in, in this situation, you don't get to hire a contractor. Uh, the builder is you. <laughs> so you actually don't have a choice in whether or not you build or even if you use a blueprint or not. So Romans 12.2 tells us not to be conformed to the culture, uh, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the culture is just continually telling us uh, what to believe and what to do about that. We're called to live biblically, not that way. Um, actually, Revelations 12.9 actually says that Satan is leading the whole world astray. So he's acting purposefully and intelligently to keep people imprisoned. So that's a big deal. We, we need to know that we are going to build. Whether we choose to do that or someone else gives us the blueprint, we are going to build a faith. And one of the things I want to talk about is that you have demolition as well as construction to do. We all grow up in the culture hearing what to believe, hearing what to do, and we have to actively work to destroy that and build something new if we're going to have a biblical faith. And then you are responsible to put effort into your building, into your theology. So I have some verses here. Um, by the way, I have a lot of verses on this that I'm not going to read. So if you're ever curious what a verse says, um, I would encourage you to go look at that. But I'm going to read pretty few of these. But I wanted them on there so you guys would, would be able to look at them later. So some people have the mindset, uh, I don't need theology. All I need is Jesus. And... Uh, acknowledging, you know, that we, we actually need a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus is super important. That's actually the most important thing is that we have a relationship with Christ because our belief in him is what allows us to be reconciled with God. But uh, ignoring the intellectual and understanding component of faith is a mistake because as soon as you start in a relationship with Christ, uh, you're believing and thinking about Jesus will determine what your relationship with him is like. So if you have a wrong perspective on who Jesus is, you're not going to have a relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? And then Proverbs 4, that verse up there, uh, Proverbs 4, 7 is the specific one I'm going to read. I'm going to read it in the King James Version. It's like old English because I think the translation is great. It says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. 
So there's like this, this like thing inside of you, you know, that, that just is like, oh yeah, that's your, the stuff you get things with, you know, this getting, and this verse is saying like, Hey, whatever it is, like drives you to get something, use all of it to get wisdom. Like it is so, so important because everything that we do in our life comes from what we understand and think it's like Neil was talking about or what David was talking about. Everything starts internally and then gets uh, acted out in your life. And then the last thing you need to build is a purpose, which Conrad mentioned as well. You need, you need someone telling you, Hey, build something here. And what and how we build are determined by what we're building for. So have you ever guys, have you guys ever seen a house that gets transformed into a business? Not like someone selling stuff out of their garage, but like a full house. That's like a law office or something. There's one on Esplanade. For you guys who live in Chico, there's like this law office that is clearly a house, right? I don't know if you've ever been inside one of those. Um, One time I drove a guy from church to a physical therapy clinic in Paradise. And it was clearly a house. Like it was on the edge of a neighborhood. (laughs) You know, you look at the outside and like house. And it has a sign saying, oh, this is the business. And it was weird. Like they had, they had done a lot to make the interior, um, you know, it, it was businessy. Like it had a waiting room, kind of the living room, dining room, kitchen would be. Um, that had, the rooms were like individual places where they would do the physical therapy. Um, but it was kind of, it was just weird. And the point I want to make here is that even if you build using the right materials, even if you have the right plan and build from the right blueprint, it's still possible to spend your life doing the wrong things. So we can't just uh, have an understanding of what the Bible says and not do it. We have to actually live out its reality in our life. So the goal of biblical theology, uh, theology just meaning the study of God and the things of God. The goal of that is to understand biblical perspective, values, and beliefs, and then act out their reality in our lives. So 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And there's a couple things I want to point out here. One, we don't come to the Bible with a blueprint and then try and squeeze the Bible in there. That's not what we're interested in. We want to understand what the Bible's blueprint is and then build from that. There's actually very specific warnings in scripture about taking away things from the Bible or adding things to the Bible. So we want to be really careful. We're not trying to fit the Bible into our plans or thoughts. We're trying to understand what the Bible says. And uh, the purpose of developing and understanding is not to feel smarter or beat people in arguments. (laughs) That is not the point of trying to understand faith. Um, The point is to be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained by God. Like that is what scripture is useful for. It is for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us. And so that we can be obedient. Um, You know, even as I've been like preparing for this talk over the past couple weeks, um, there's been multiple times where I've just been struck by, by this sense of joy and wonder and awe of God that I want you guys to have. So I think the best way you can do that is to start studying who God is and what his word says for yourself seriously. So even if you get nothing else from today's talk, if you actually come away with a desire to study who God is 
and to study the Bible. I will be so happy. I will consider today a win if you start doing that. And Neil actually brought up a good point uh, today in his session that I was going to talk about. And that's when you're building, you always start with the foundation because everything else flows out of the foundation. So this is called Theology 101. In reality, this is like Theology point one or something. I don't know. We're, we're going to go over some really basic things that are really important. So it's just two foundational elements of theology that we're going to talk about today. There are more than two, even like in the foundation, there's more than two things you need to know. Um, but this is going to be brief. I want to be able to answer questions at the end. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just, just move through these pretty quick. And then we can talk about those later. Um, please, like if you have any areas of interest, write those down, you know, study them for yourself. So I would really encourage you to do that. So the first foundational element of understanding theology is the Bible. Uh, specifically, what is the Bible? And I want to clarify that I'm not asking the question, can we believe the Bible is historically accurate? Um, that is also a really foundational question. That's really important. But I think through the faith forum, uh, through different messages we have on our podcast, even books like Case for Christ. I think we have enough resources to answer that for ourselves. Uh, if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to ask those, but I'm not talking about that today. Uh, what I'm talking about is why we think the Bible is God's word and not just another book that happens to be right in a lot of areas. So uh, today I'm, I'm assuming that the Bible is historically accurate. And if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to come from like, well, the Bible is right. So here's, you know, but I'm going to assume that today because uh, I think we all have enough information to come to that conclusion. And the way we're going to come at this is to address Jesus view of scripture. So that's what we need, want to answer is if the Bible is historically accurate, if it gives us a right picture of Jesus, what did Jesus think about the Bible? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, and proved he was the son of God, and it was perfect, then we want to have the same view of scripture that Jesus had. We don't want it to be any less or any more than what Jesus thought. Luckily, he was really clear on this in a lot of areas. So the Old Testament, uh, he saw it as authoritative. You know, when he was tempted by Satan, he, he used scripture every time to refute Satan. Even when Satan tried to use um, scripture to get Jesus to test God, Jesus said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And I wanted to point that out specifically because it means that Jesus understood how to interpret the Bible and what things applied to what situations. So that is important. Uh, in his arguments with religious leaders, Jesus would use scripture to end the argument. So the passages, the Mark 12, I have listed there. There's this group trying to get Jesus to side with them and say, there's no resurrection. And instead of addressing any of their arguments that are supposed to make Jesus like sound absurd if he confirms there's a resurrection, Jesus ignores all that. And he goes to one verse and he says, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from that, I am, he says, okay, if they were dead, God would say, I was. And since he says, I am, there's a resurrection. Like he, he rests his entire argument on scripture, leaves leave nothing to what they were trying to get him to say. And his assumption in that is if you have a verse on your side, if you have part of the Bible that agrees with you and you're interpreting it correctly, you're right. That is the truth. You don't have to go to any other source. You just know that that's the truth. 
So every single word had meaning to Jesus. And Matthew 5.18, he confirms that. He says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then in Luke 24, he's explaining to the disciples how prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in his life. So that's actually another thing you can look at to, to determine the historical accuracy of the Bible is prophecy. And we're not going to do that today. I just wanted to mention that. Um, there's a really great message on our podcast called Can I Trust the Bible? And I would encourage you to listen to that if you have questions there. So that's what Jesus thought of the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, he couldn't quote Ephesians and then say that's scripture, right? Because it hadn't been written yet. You know, he hadn't seen Paul at this point. Um, but he had confirmed the authority of apostles to write scripture. You can read that passage if you want to know uh, what he says there. But J.I. Packer had a great, great quote summing it up. Said he had promised the 12 that the spirit should come and teach them what in his own earthly ministry he had left unsaid. So Jesus confirms the apostles authority to write scripture. So the writings of the prophets, the Old Testament, and the writings of the apostles, the New Testament, Jesus sees as the authoritative inspired word of God. And if you want to look into this more, actually, I have a question you could try and answer if you want to write this somewhere. And that is, what makes prophets and apostles prophets and apostles? That would be a good question to understand and to have a grasp on, but we're not going to talk about it. Uh, inspired by God, I wanted to briefly visit this concept because it's really uh, important to understand. It means like the, the actual word in the, the Greek means breathed out by God. Um, and this is just confirming like in a real sense, even though there's a lot of human authors for the Bible, God is the ultimate author. And he's the one who uh, made the Bible like unified and together and true because he was its author. And there's two words that people describe to use, describe the Bible with. Uh, there's inerrant, which is without fault and free from error, and then infallible, which is incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. So uh, have any of you made a 100% on like a quiz or a test at any point in your life? Me too. Yeah. I one time in third grade got 100% on a spelling test. Yeah. Same, same, Jacob. That's yeah, so in that actual in that instance where you made a hundred percent on a quiz, that means you were inerrant. You did not you did not make any errors, right? Um, but that that is true of the Bible that it does not it did not make any errors. But the Bible is also infallible. And I want to ask you: Have you gotten one hundreds on every single quiz or test you've ever taken? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the next spelling test for me confirmed that I was not infallible that I could make mistakes. And understanding both of these uh, is really helpful because the Bible is infallible. And that's a higher term than inerrant. <laughs> and um, what that means is when someone says, you know, I really understand like what the Bible says here. And I get it. I agree that the Bible is right. But in my specific situation, it means, and I say something not in the Bible. That happens all the time. People will say, yeah, the Bible is true. But for me, in this really specific situation, it's not true. And that means they don't think it's infallible. They might think it's inerrant, but they don't think it applies to them specifically. 
I do want to clarify, um, the Bible does use metaphors and analogies and narratives, it's like stories, to communicate truth. So you want to be really intentional and careful in the way we, in, we interpret the Bible. Um, so we know that Jesus, confirmed as the perfect son of God, tells us that we can trust the Bible completely as the word of God. Um, the following question that I want to talk about is the scope of scripture. And I don't, I don't know, like this may be different for p- different people, but this question um, kind of shook me a little more than the other one when I first heard it, because the thing in question isn't, you know, oh, is the Bible inspired by God? But people are like, oh, okay, I believe this, the Bible is inspired by God, but what should be counted as the Bible? Like, should aren't there maybe some books in there that aren't like that way? And maybe um, some books that are that way, like weren't included, right? And I want to draw a comparison here. Does anyone know what happened when Disney bought Star Wars? Yeah, Brandon's giving me the the thumbs down. So you've got like all these awesome books, games, like years, decades of Star Wars stories. And Disney's like, nah, like those are legends now. They didn't actually happen. They're, they're, They're still, you know, they're in the stories, but they didn't actually happen in Star Wars. So the question that we want to talk about is, is there a legends category for the Bible? Like, is part of the Bible, you know, oh, that's a legend story. Um, and I want to give you a list of facts as we get into this that I was completely unaware of. So you might know some of these things. You might know all these things. I did not until I started personally digging into this stuff. So facts, you like my little, my little bullet there, just facts. Uh, one, the New Testament canon was formalized in 398 AD in response to a heretic. So basically this dude gives a tiny New Testament with no reference to the Old Testament God as Jesus' father. And the church was like, dude, like, that's not right. We need to correct him. Like, here is the actual Old Testament. Okay, so that's why they formalized the New Testament in 398 AD. Two, the church did not see itself as creating the New Testament. Uh, they were carefully, prayerfully, and seek, thoroughly seeking out what already was God's word. So they did not think that they had the authority to choose what was in the Bible. They were saying, okay, what do we need to formalize because it already is the Bible? And uh, that specifically is important because it means that the church falls under the authority of scripture as well. Some Christian denominations um, believe that church tradition or church councils or statements made by the church um, are equal in authority to the Bible. And that is not accurate based on church history and scripture itself. Like the church is supposed to be under the Bible's authority as well. Third fact, although hundreds or thousands of books were written claiming to be scripture, that is true. So if someone says, well, weren't there like 2000 candidates or something? It's like, yeah, yeah, there were. Only a few were actually in question. And by few, I mean literally two or three. Because the overwhelming majority of these other books were like clearly cult leaders trying to get people to follow them. (laughs) Like it was just obvious that their teaching was completely against the Bible. So like 99% more than 99% of these other books uh, were easily discarded from from being in scripture. And then... For the ones that were included, there was a process. There were three benchmarks they had to pass. I'm going to go over these quickly. All the books in the New Testament passed through this process. So if it's in the Bible, it passed these three benchmarks. 
and one was apostolic origin or oversight. So Jesus confirmed the apostles' ability to write scripture, right? He said, you're going to complete my teaching. So the church said, okay, Paul was an apostle. His books, his letters, they're not in question. Uh, Luke and Mark, they're not apostles. But they had Paul and Peter with them confirming like what they were saying. They were, they were um, I'm searching for a word, like they wanted those books to be written. They were sanctioned. There we go. Sanctioned by the apostles. The second benchmark, reception by the early church. And then the third benchmark, the compatibility of teaching with unquestioned books. So looking at, does this contradict anything in the Bible? Like in the books we know should be in the Bible. No? Okay. Like that makes it higher on the list for inclusion. And the last thing I want to end with here is Jesus says in, in Matthew 5.18 that scripture cannot be broken. And I, I personally believe that God was leading the church through this process so that no books aren't, were included that shouldn't be and that no books that should have been included aren't included. Um, but this is really helpful information. This like process the church went through of deciding, you may need to know this. If someone asks you why you think the right books are in the Bible, you should be able to enter them. And then the third here, third point here with what is the Bible? Uh, I want to talk about the application of scripture. And this is filtering our perspectives, our values, and our decisions through the Bible. And that's prioritizing it over culture, uh, over emotion, over other people's ideas or opinions. Um, you know, being like the, these people called the Bereans, they would study the Old Testament and see if what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was saying lined up with it. Because they're like, okay, this sounds really good. But just in case, like, we're going to check back. And Paul says, you should be like them. Like, please, check, like, leaders of leaders teaching. Check it against the Bible. See if what they're teaching is true. And then second, pursue a right understanding. Uh, get to know what's actually in the Bible. You know, the Bible will not have application in your life if you don't know what it says. So I have some study ideas for you there. I'm not going to say them all because it would take a bit. But I would look into those things if you are curious about them. And don't ignore questions. And that can, lead to dis that can lead to destructive consequences in the future. So I want to give you an illustration really quick just to outline that. Imagine you're in the middle of a desert. And 100 miles away, there's an oasis. And you know you have enough food and water to get there. So you're like, okay, I'm setting out. And you go. Now, if you're one degree off in your judgment of direction, you are never going to get where you mean to get. That one degree of separation becomes really, really costly given enough time. So when you have questions, when you have things that are like, oh, like, man, do I believe that? Like, should I believe that? Is that right? Ask somebody. This goes into the third point. Be teachable. Look in the Bible, what it says. Ask people who you trust for their interpretation and uh, study what people smarter than you think. Like the church has had the same book for 2000 years. You're not going to read a verse that no one's ever read before in your quiet time. Like there are people way wiser than any of us on this call who have gone over the Bible in detail and tried to present what it says accurately. So like, by all means, be teachable, read some books on, on different things you have questions on. Um, so that you can be um, really straight in your direction and not get that one degree of separation. 
So that was the first foundation is what is the Bible? The second foundational element I want to talk about is who is God? And in the study of God, like the, the practice of theology, uh, it's common to start off with one specific quality, and that is incomprehensibility. And that is a really long word that usually, like when we talk in normal speech, you know, incomprehensible means like you just can't understand anything. Like it's not intelligible at all. In theology, um, it has a very specific definition. And that's that we will not ever be able to fully, completely understand all of who God is. Like even in heaven, we won't be able to do that because um, we have limited minds and God is not limited. He's infinite. So John Calvin says the finite cannot contain or grasp the infinite. But luckily, we can know things about God because God has communicated to us through nature and scripture in a way that we understand. So God reaches out to us and shows us parts of who he is through scripture and through nature. And then we're restricted to using human language to describe God. So remember earlier I said that the Bible uses metaphors, analogies, things like that. This is what I'm talking about here. Um, let me give an example. In Isaiah 66, 1, uh, it says, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now, are you afraid of God's actual feet crushing your like home? No, because we know that God doesn't have actual feet. It says in other places in the Bible that God's a spirit. Like we don't think there's this huge being like sitting in heaven and then one day his feet are going to like crush the Chico, you know? Um, we understand that it's like, oh, God is big. He is powerful. Like he has authority in heaven and on earth. Like we understand what that's supposed to mean. So the Bible communicates a lot using analogies about God, but uh, that's human language. So it can't fully capture all of who God is. And then, so that's the, the first um, thing you usually talk about when you talk about God is this idea of not being able to fully grasp all of who he is. And then the attributes of God. Um, I want to cover some basics here. There's a lot of other things that you could say, um, but we don't have a lot of time. So I just want to commend you guys like studying who God is is worth it. I listed some books at the end of this that really were eye opening for me and just um, made me worship God because I understood more about him. So incommunicable attributes. Uh, these are things that only God can have. Like even if like God, even God cannot communicate these to another creature because if he made something, they would exist because of him. Like he can't communicate these. Nothing else is like this in all creation. The first one is aseity. And that's the property by which a being exists in and of itself. So Acts 17, 28, the verse at the poem below that, it says that in him, we live and move and have our being. Like God, yeah, yeah, it's a new word for me too, Ryan. <laughs> um, new when I heard it. God does not need anything to exist. He does not need anything to exist. We have to have so many things to exist. And at the base level, we need God. Because without God, we would not exist. God is not like that. Nothing has to exist for God to be. And that, that is huge. 
Like that is such a big concept. Like I don't even understand all that, but it just like God is totally um, independent in a way that nothing else can ever be. And then two, he's immutable. He's unchanging and he always has been and always will be. And then omnipotence, he's all powerful. Omniscience, he knows everything. Literally everything there is to know, God knows. And then omnipresence, he's everywhere. So in some sense, God is where you are right now. He's also everywhere else. Like God is always present. I don't understand that, but the Bible confirms that about him. And then God is sovereign. I'm not going to go through these quotes because I want to make sure we have enough time, but I would encourage you guys to to look at these, Um, especially, well, I'm going to go to the second one, I guess. Even my sin is worked out under the sovereignty of God. So he's not to blame for sin, but God uses everything in his plan. So God has a plan. He is sovereign. He's in control of every little thing and he's using it for your good. The second thing is communicable attributes. That is traits that we can have. So the incommunicable, we can never have those things. Like no matter how hard we try, you know, when we get to heaven, doesn't matter. We will never have those. But the communicable things are things that we can have and things that we're actually commanded to have in scripture to some degree. So the first one is holiness. That's this idea of moral purity and then righteousness. And I want to spend some time on righteousness, because I think this is a really, really important thing to understand, even in just explaining the gospel. So righteousness has a few different aspects. Uh, One is justice. So God punishes everything that deserves to be punished. Like he is completely just. If someone um, needed a $100 fine, to be punished, God would give them a hundred dollar fine. If someone needed to be in prison for their entire life, God would put them in prison for their entire life. Like he, he always punishes perfectly for what the crime is and he's holy. So God is perfectly morally pure and really sinful beings. God punishes sin. And that is necessary that's the, the third thing there. Justice is obligatory to righteousness. If God didn't punish sin, he would not be holy. And I'm going to say that. I just want to drive that point home. If God did not punish sin, he would not be holy. The second part or facet of righteousness is mercy and grace. And under this, you have a couple categories. There's common grace, which is given to everyone where God delays punishment. He doesn't send people straight to hell the first time they sin. You know, my pastor back home would be like, man, like maybe if God did that, people would take him more seriously. Like just as soon as someone sins, like, all right, bam, going to hell. But no, like God does not do that. He delays punishment and he makes life possible. So the fact that we're able to like have coffee in the morning is because God lets us have coffee. You know, that's that's just very common grace. The Bible it says that it rains on the unjust and the just. Like this is to everybody. Then there's special grace, which is given to some people, where God chooses to save undeserving people from hell and give them eternal life through Jesus. And mercy and grace are something that God freely chooses to give. 
they are not necessary for God's righteousness to be fulfilled. So R.C. Sproul has this awesome quote, like paints this picture really well. It says, the moment we think someone deserves mercy or grace, we are no longer thinking of mercy and grace. We are thinking about justice. Like that helped me understand so much because we're like, man, like shouldn't God, like since I have mercy and grace, shouldn't God, it's like, no, he does not have to. Like the moment I think someone deserves mercy and grace, I'm not thinking about mercy and grace. I'm thinking about justice. And there's a really specific illustration here that I wanted to share with you guys. I think I should be able to share my screen. And this is, um, oh, I can't share my screen. Hmm. Ryan, do you know if I can change that setting really, or if you can change that setting really quick? Uh, you're good. I, I just changed it. Nice. Thank you. So this is my Microsoft Paint skills. Um, in everything God could do, there's for everything that could be done at all. There's righteousness and unrighteous. God is never unrighteous. So nothing that God does is injustice. Like God is right in everything that he does. He's always just. And then sometimes he offers mercy and grace. And those mercy and grace are not justice, but they are righteous. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful. That was really helpful for me to understand. Um, on that, can you be justice while you're giving mercy? Good question. We're going to look at that in a minute. Good question. So the last thing I want to talk about with respect to the communicable attributes of God is love. And I'm going to talk about, talk about that specifically um, in our next point, which is fulfillment in Jesus. So Jesus, his life, his death and his resurrection show us a perfect picture of who God is. And this is a, a way where you can see theology building to something else, building to the next thing. And that's why I want to talk about Jesus because through Jesus holiness, through his perfect life, he showed us God, God's holiness, God's justice, his punishment of sin was fulfilled through Jesus death in our place. So God punishes your sin he punishes my sin in jesus like jesus decided to take on that punishment for us so in jesus punishment like god's justice is fulfilled god's mercy and grace sinners like me who deserve to suffer the wrath of god instead receive eternal life so it's not just that we don't get hell it's that we get to go to heaven and be with God forever. Like we give away our sin to Jesus. He takes it away and we take on Jesus' righteousness. God gives that to us. He credits it to our account. And then his omnipotence. Um, Jesus died and was raised back to life. Like that gives, can give us so much hope and trust in God. No, being convinced of that fact that, God can do the same thing for us. And then the last thing again is love. God did not leave us on our own. And I want to talk about this. This is similar to what Neil was talking about today, actually. But I'm going to spend uh, and actually end our time talking about love. Because this attribute of God is the only reason we can know anything about him. If we were left on our own, 
we would all be slaves to sin and death, and we would not have any way out. Like we would not be able to save ourselves. But God, just because of his love, sends Jesus to die in our place, to take our sin, and then to give us Jesus' righteousness as our own. So this is an attribute, this love, this sacrificial love, is something we are also supposed to have. And uh, I love this, this quote, when God gives us a responsibility, there is always a corresponding ability. That's R.C. Sproul again, if you want to write that down. When God gives us a responsibility, there's always a corresponding ability. God's not going to say, fly 100 feet in the air. I'm like, I can't do that. Can you do that? <laughs> no. Like, God's going to give us things to do that we can actually do. And we all have different ways we can show God's love to people. Neil mentioned some um, in serving people in um, even just practically meeting needs. But the main way and the primary way that we can show God's love is by sharing the gospel. Uh, on Sunday at Chico Community Church, our, uh, Pastor Tim, he said that God's blessing is meant to flow from us to other people. So if you ignore passing on the blessing of the gospel, even if you keep the other aspects of love, that love is incomplete. It is not God's love. You know, you're telling your friends, um, your coworkers, your family, your roommates, your neighbor, just like a stranger you meet. If I ignore sharing the gospel with people, but do everything else, I'm telling them, hey, I'm going to make your life on earth so good. I'm going to be your friend. You're going to have a great time around me. I'm going to love you. But I do not care about your eternity. And that is so wrong. If I do that, I am just spitting in God's face by ignoring my responsibility given in scripture to pass on the gospel. And I'm praying that none of us would, would do that, would ignore our responsibility to share the gospel, because that is what saves people. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So don't, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. When God gives us a responsibility, there is a corresponding ability. Always. And so the Holy Spirit, this is the good news. Like the Holy Spirit is with you. He wants you to have opportunity to share the gospel. He wants you to share. He will change people's hearts if you're sharing the gospel. We don't choose who accepts, but the Holy Spirit can change people's hearts to accept the gospel. And I want to end um, by reading Matthew 22, 35 through 40. It says, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I just want to encourage all of us, love God by obeying him. 
and love people by sharing the gospel. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have some some Q&A time afterward. But let me go ahead and pray. God, when I just think about the fact that you've given me grace, instead of giving me justice, I am so grateful. God, I just pray that all of us would, would understand to a deeper level how much you've blessed us and just your glory and majesty shown in Jesus. God, I pray that you would just really stir all of us to try and understand more about you, to know you on a deeper level and to just deepen our relationship with you, Father. I just pray that that would be the result of this time, that you would use this to to pull us closer to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I have some resources listed at the bottom there. Those will be helpful if you want to go through them. I think they should be even linked on the PDF. But for now, uh, we can go ahead and have a short Q&A time. It looks like we've got about 15 minutes, maybe. Um, yeah, so does anybody have any questions? If I don't know or if I'm not sure about an answer, I'm going to say that and maybe tell you some places to look, just so you know. You can unmute yourself and uh, do that, or you can put it in the chat. Either way. Anybody? Yo, I have a question. Um, so suppose you're trying to connect with somebody or uh, you're trying to share with somebody and maybe they pull out some like theological concepts or some kind of heavy theology that you're not familiar with or you don't know how to answer them. Um, how would you recommend we go about um, responding to somebody like that? Because we don't, obviously don't want to shrink back, but what do you think uh, could be a helpful way to, to move forward in that type of situation? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, if the person actually wants to have a discussion and is not just throwing up a smoke screen and trying to get out of talking with you, um, then I would say to the person, hey, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how that fits in but I want to understand that. And I want to like get us both to a place where we can figure out the truth. Would you be okay if I talked to some people or read something uh, and then came back to you and we can talk about it? Because if the person actually cares and actually wants to know what the truth is, then um, they're going to do that. But a lot of times when someone throws out something really obscure or hard to understand, what they're actually trying to do is just avoid talking to you and making the Bible real in their life has, has been my experience. So. Yeah. Anybody else? Also, Evan, was that helpful? Cool. Any common questions that take us one degree off? 
Um, I don't know if I can think of any specific questions. I think that usually a more common thing is just not addressing questions um, or honestly majoring on minors. Like there are things that don't matter <laughs> as far as the gospel goes, like when Jesus is going to come and whether the rapture is going to be before or after. I don't have an opinion on that because it doesn't matter. <laughs> like as far as living an obedient life now. Um, yeah. So I think when people start to be really into like that type of thing and trying to like nail down like an argument, you know, um, that's like majoring on something very minor. Hope that's helpful. Anybody else? I'm going to give it like, like 10 more seconds just in case. All right, cool. I'm really glad that I got to go over this with you guys. Um, I would go ahead, if you want to save that PDF somewhere, probably a good good thing to look back at if you ever want to follow up on any of that stuff. Yeah, for now, I will see you guys tomorrow via a camera, I guess. Cool. All right. Bye.